Okay, we are returning to lesson eight this morning. I did uh, leave back there lesson nine that you could pick up as well because we might get into that. Lesson nine is our final lesson, but we're returning to lesson eight this morning. And of course, we're we're returning back to that theme verse that we've dealt with over the last several months in Ephesians chapter 6, the reality of, of and responsibility for us as a people, but uh, particularly in the home, to bring up those under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we are called there to not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in this discipline and instruction. And of course, we looked at how do we, how do we provoke to anger? How do we exasperate, as Colossians puts it in Colossians chapter 3? How do we cause them to be angry uh, when we're bringing them up? And we began to go through several things that we might not be doing in order that would provoke that. And one was consistently disciplining and instruction. Maybe we're not doing that. We ought to be doing that as we've seen over our time together. And maybe we're not doing that. And so that is provoking them to, to greater and greater exasperation and greater and greater anger in their own life. Or maybe we're just excessively controlling them. We're, always making every choice, never allowing them to fail in any kind of way, never allowing any situation whereby we must oppose them. And so they would obviously develop characters of exasperation. Or maybe we're just too lazy, too lazy, and we just don't want to engage in any of that. We're not willing to take the time to think things through. And in that, we... we default back to excessive control, because if I can control everything the way I want it, then I don't have to deal with anything. And really, that's an expression of laziness. And also, it's an expression of fear. We fear that we might fail. We fear that they might turn out some way that we don't want them to turn out. And so we become the ultimate authority in their life rather than pointing them to Jesus Christ. Or maybe in order to avoid the excessive control, we go to another extreme and we have no limits at all. We just allow freedom to reign. It's like going back to lesson one where we have this Rogerian idea of life where everything's a blank slate and we just let them self-actualize and try whatever it is they need to try, no limits. And we, we learned last time that if we have no limits in the home, we have no humility Right? There's no humility. There's no reason for any desire to come under authority in any kind of way. It creates in them or, or at least opens the door for the creation of this prideful arrogance where they never seek wise counsel from anyone because they've done it their way all the time. The Bible clearly tells us that only a fool can live without wise counsel. Um, they live in a foolish way. Their expression is foolishness. You, know, you, you don't have to go far. You can just go through the Proverbs and read every passage that deals with a fool and what it is to be foolish. And it won't take you long to realize that is not what I want for those under my care. So there's no humility. There's no cleansing of the conscience. Proverbs 20 verse 30 says, stripes that wound scour away evil. Discipline scours away a prideful heart. It scours away uh, a guilty conscience. It cleared, helps clear the conscience. But when there's no limits, no discipline, then there's no reason to confess sin. There's no reason to be thinking about sin. And so our conscience becomes hardened by that. And if we do not have any cleansing through confession of sin, then we're really just suppressing the conscience. We're silencing the conscience, and that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. 
So that kind of brings us up to speed at where we went last time together. And I just want to continue that in our notes together. There's a second example uh, that parents don't do in the in verse in Ephesians chapter six four in order to exasperate their children what they don't do and that is not maintaining any kind of involvement in their children's life no involvement in other words neglecting or ignoring our disciples or our children and we all know this these are not new these are not things we've never heard. Even the world would say to us that time together is important. Um, and yet at the time, oftentimes we neglect that, especially I think as fathers, because fathers typically are the ones who, at least in Christian homes, are, are usually earning the finances for the home. I know a lot of us have multi-income homes now because of the way our economic systems are. But normally it's it's the father, and the father's involved in that time away, and when he comes home, the kids want to spend time with them, and, and oftentimes we just push that aside and ignore it. Don't do it because we're too busy with whatever else it is we are busy. But remember Deuteronomy chapter 6? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7 tells us exactly how we are to instill the principles of life with our children. Remember verse 7, it said we are to teach how. How are we to go about teaching our kids? Well, in that verse it says when you sit down and when you rise up and when you walk by the way. In other words, in every activity of life, you're to be teaching your children. So if we're going to fulfill Ephesians 6 verse 4, as we're commanded to do as fathers and mothers, then we have to be instructing them, and instruction takes place in every area of life, every milieu of life, every avenue of life. We have to be engaged with them in order to fulfill Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Far too often today we don't do that, right? We, we look aside from that. We don't spend the time that we need to with them because it's too much effort or because go back to the ones that we've already talked about. We're lazy or we don't want to do it, right? We really, the issue is we really just aren't thinking of others more highly than ourselves. That's the issue. We just don't want to be with them, even though we say we might want to be with them. And so we have to encourage them by being with them and have our interests engaged in their interests. Um, we'll be an encouragement to them when we spend time with them. I remember when I was in seminary and our kids were smaller, I mean, you know, I was as busy as a one-armed paper hanger. I mean, I, I was busy working 44 hours a week and taking 14 hours of school, had three kids, a family. My job was 350 miles away from where I actually lived, and all these kinds of things. And oftentimes I would be having to go to soccer games and these kinds of things, and I had assignments due and reading that I had to do and all this other kind of stuff. And I remember there were times when I was at soccer games with my computer on my lap typing a paper as the kids are playing soccer. And every now and then I'd be looking up to see the soccer game. And it wasn't necessarily that they wanted to know that I watched every little play that went on, but that I was there, that I was with them, that I was seeing their life in action, and we could interact about that in their life. And they may never have said anything to us as mom and dad about any of those things, but surely in their heart it was affecting them that mom and dad were there. We could be there. Now, I understand there are times when I couldn't be, but but if I could be, I tried, I just tried to make it something that I could kill two birds with one stone if I if you you know what I mean I had to read a uh, 
read about the early church fathers or something like that. I'm sitting in a lawn chair with photocopies of what I need to read, and I'd be reading and watching them do the things that, that they were involved with. Otherwise, all they knew of me was this guy who drove the car. You know, guy who drove the car to the church, guy who drove the car to the airport, guy who drove the car. But other than that, mom was around, but he was just this figure that flew in and flew out. And so I wanted them to just kind of see that. And so you have to make those important choices in order to encourage them. Otherwise, they will be discouraged and provoked The third mistake sometimes that we make is not showing love for our spouse. That's really weird. What are you you talking about? That's odd. Well, turn it to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll just turn to a couple passages that are there in our notes. Ephesians 5 gives us that really overall view of the relationship between a husband and wife. In chapter in chapter 5 verse 22 through the end of the chapter. All right, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Sometimes we have an issue with this whole idea of mutual submission. We don't like that word because we live in America and we're free. We're not coming under anybody. And submission is this idea of willing a willingness to come under. Well, notice that the writer here, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts that little phrase at the end, as to the Lord. So the very way you submit yourself to Christ is the way you are to come under the leadership in your home of your husbands. Why? Because the husbands are the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself is the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything, as to the Lord, right? But also husbands love your wife just as Christ also loves the church. So there's another phrase that puts a context into how that love is to look. It's to look like the love that Christ has expressed for his church. Now, how did Christ express his love for the church? Well, he, I mean, well, the screen's down, but he went to the cross, right? He died. He gave everything for the church. Well, would you as husbands say that that's how you interact with the relationship with your wife? You're willing to give everything, give yourself and everything to her so that you might sanctify her just as Christ sanctified the church and washed her with the water of the word that he might present to himself the church so you love your wife in that same way so that you might have a wife that is pure and holy and without spot or wrinkle and any such thing that she be holy and blameless what he says verse 28 so husbands ought to also love their own wives why because you love yourself you love yourself you've never neglected yourself of anything Everyone who hates his own flesh doesn't do that. He nourishes it just as Christ does his church. So there's this grand example and grand roadmap to showing love to our spouses, love to one another. We are to treat one another as Christ treats us. Titus chapter 2 Verse 4, well, we go to verse 3, right? He's talking to the older women in the church. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. That's not just behavior outside the home or in the church or wherever. This is period in your behavior. This is how you're to be, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? So that you might encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. So the reason you live the way you do is because there's a trickle-down effect on those who are watching you about how to love your spouse, how to care for your home. 
And then, of course, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. John gives the overarching reality that this isn't just between a husband and wife. This is all Christians. Let us love with word. Let us, let us not love simply with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So our love is to be expressed not just in these flowery kind of Hallmark cards that we get on these Hallmark holidays that have been created for us in America, but we love with words and deeds. We love with our actions. We love in not simply saying it, but doing it. And therefore, in the home, when a husband and wife are expressing love to one another as Christ has commanded us, then it creates in the home a stable environment, a peaceful environment where kids are comfortable. But if you're arguing and you're not resolving your differences the way Christ would, especially if it's something that deals with a child in the home, then you're not showing affection to each other. Not about kiss on the cheek, a hug, a holding of hands. That's not what we're talking about necessarily. We're talking about how we deal with one another in everyday life. Being condescending, that's, that's something that will cause your children to wonder. I remember growing up in a home my parents got saved when I was pretty young, but but they didn't know anything about Christianity prior to that. And it seemed like every Sunday we would come home from church, they, they'd be in their room arguing. That's what I called it. They said it, they were having discussions. Well, those discussions were voluminous and loud. And I grew up as a kid thinking, I wonder if my parents are going to stay together. Because I didn't know what was going on, but it was just, that's the environment that was there on a Sunday. Um, now, they grew out of that over time as they learned what the Word of God said, but it was a, it was a cause for me as the youngest of four boys to wonder, wonder what's going to happen. Well, that's what happens in the home. Susan. Yeah, that's great. My wife and I tried to, when our kids were younger, we tried to, when I would come home from work, the kids obviously always wanted to see me, and so I would greet them, but then they would have to, we would set them in some place to, to interact with each other while her and I got reacquainted for at least the first 20 minutes of my coming home. And I think that was a, a stabilizing force in their life. They knew that that we were, we had to get on the same page. I wanted to find out about her day. She wanted to find out about my day. She was going to fill me in on all that took place during the day with the kids while I was gone and what maybe I needed to, to take care of and deal with. And Because as you know, in the home, kids always try to work dad against mom or mom against dad in some kind of subtle ways. And so they'll say, well, mom told me this. And if you didn't talk to mom to find out if that's really the case, guess what? Now there's problem. So we would always try to get reacquainted in those first 20 minutes so we could at least spend a little time together and then I could interact with them more more directly. And, and I think that was helpful in our home. It certainly was helpful for our marriage. Um, and I don't think our children ever thought, boy, I wonder if mom and dad are going to stay together. I don't think they ever had that thought. Um, I don't know. You could ask Austin. He's here this morning. He'd probably tell you the truth, but. There's a fourth, we're talking about sins of omission, right? Things that we need to avoid. The fourth sin of omission is not visibly, not necessarily showing love to our spouse, but also not showing love to our children. Right? John 1 John 3.18 said that, right? We are, to, we are to love as we are loved. Um, and so it's not necessarily important or 
only that we show it to our spouse, but we need to make sure that we are showing love to them in all those special ways that might encourage them. And that may be different with each home. That may not be the way uh, one home does it, but certainly you have to you have to come to those ways in which you express love. I know some homes never had hugging going on in the home. The father never hugged their children or whatever, for whatever reason. Well, that certainly wasn't a problem in our home. We, we, we hugged each other. We, we didn't have a problem with that, but uh, whatever it is that you could express that would encourage them uh, in that way is, is always to be, um, will encourage them rather than discourage them. And then, of course, the fifth example of a sin to avoid is not listening to your child, not listening to them. Let's turn to another couple of passages, Proverbs 18. For the first one, Proverbs 18, verse 13 and 15 and 17. Notice what it says. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame to him. So there's just a simple principle of Scripture to listen, to be a good listener. Those in your home that want to say something to you, speak to you, be a good listener. Practice listening. And then verse 15, the mind of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So there again, is the same kind of drive, this reality of being a listener. And then of course, verse 17 kind of gives the opposite to that in the sense of listening to someone who comes with their case. And the first to plead his case seems like they're right until you listen to the other side, until you examine the others. And that means you got to listen. You can't be too quick with your decisions. You have to be a listener, listening to those decisions. Many of you, like we did in our own home, deal with sibling rivalry all the time. And oftentimes we want to just be quick, quick about it and give the answer and take care of the issue and solve the problem or at least make it peaceful for the moment and we don't listen to the whole thing. Well, that may satisfy the sinful desire of one, but it will exasperate the other. We see this all the time, even in our own justice system. Someone comes into a courtroom and the judge only listens to one side doesn't take the whole case into consideration, and that exasperates people. So we have to listen to them, and that means we have to answer them. Uh, when we can, we have to pay attention, let them finish their words, um, give them opportunities to speak. When that's not done, we open the door for exasperation. Well, that, those are just some examples of what we are not to do or what parents don't do that might exasperate their children. Are there any examples you might have in your own mind that we didn't list here that things that you've learned over the years or, or that you can think of that some might do or might not do that would exasperate those under your care? Some of you have a lot of years under your belt who could help others. Crickets. Doug. Because we don't have kids, sitting here and teaching, I'm always having to look at it from a perspective of what am I to learn from this? Mm-hmm. And as far as uh, exasperating a child, I think of what the Pharisees did to the Jewish people by imposing on them things that they themselves Sure, being a being a person of your word. Right, your person of your word. Yeah, you know, it, there's an interesting example in our world going on right now, isn't there? 
right? We can discuss all the facts about COVID and all these kinds of things. But what is it that really exasperates people right now in this COVID time? What's that? Okay, hypocrisy, disinformation. Anything else? Being told what to do. Sure, that, that we don't ever like that here, especially here in America. But what is it? Isn't it? Isn't it really the continual changing of the line? One moment it said we do this, the next moment it, well, it changes, and it's arbitrary depending on where you are and where you go and what you're doing and who who you're talking to and. It's just constant change. You don't know where the boundary is. Nobody really knows where the boundary is because that constantly is changing from the top down. That's exasperating, isn't it? Well, think about that in a smaller context in the home. That's what we're talking about. All those things that that you bring about in your home that are to instill a, a... peaceful, God-honoring, God-pursuing, unhypocritical, humble place, and yet oftentimes we're changing the boundary all the time. We're not letting anybody know the boundary or why the boundary's changing. It's just changing at our whims. Is it any wonder sometimes those in our homes just go, whatever. Whatever, I'm going to do whatever I want because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of idea we're talking about. So whatever that is, whatever that is in those things we talked about or, or other things maybe that you've neglected, think about that and say, is this a potential avenue for exasperation in my home? All right, let's look at what we do, what parents do that can provoke their children to exasperation or anger. Well, the first one's probably the biggest one, and that is being an angry person yourself. I think this is probably the biggest one, right? Because if you're angry, if you're an angry person, you're probably going to drive those under your care to hopelessness and despair themselves. Now, what is sinful anger an expression of? Pride. That's just pride, selfishness, right? Sinful anger is an expression of pride. It's selfishness in the heart. And that, therefore, includes overt anger. Overt anger. In fact, Scripture speaks a lot about sinful anger. Proverbs 19.19, anger bears a penalty and is repetitive. It's an interesting axiom. Sinful anger bears a penalty. In other words, there's, there's going to be consequences for that, and it's repetitive. Proverbs 20, verse 3, anger is foolish. Any fool will quarrel. I think that's so great. You know, we don't need a whole lot of explanation to understand that from God. It's foolish to fight. Any fool will fight. So when you're fighting, guess what? You're a fool. That's what God says. You're a fool. Proverbs 22, verse 24 and 25. Anger is a bad example. Verse 25 says, don't associate with angry people. It's a bad example. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Those, who, those with no self-control are weak and easily overtaken. He doesn't necessarily mean they're physically overtaken. He means they're overtaken in their emotions and everything else because they don't have self-control. So as disciplers in the home, we have to never discipline in sinful anger. God never disciplines us in any kind of sinfulness, we can never discipline in sinful anger. Sinful anger is something that we cannot do. It is, in one sense, it is abusive to do that. Now, might we at times sinfully discipline? Yes, because we're sinners. 
and we we sin. But what do we do when we sin? We we confess, right? We go and we make it right. So if it's if our anger is expressed towards those under our care, we need to go to them. We need to show that the very thing we're saying to them, the word of God is is to be in your life, you're to follow God, you're to trust God, you're to come under the care of God, you need a Savior. Well, if we're unwilling to come under that, then why in the world would our children ever want to do that? It doesn't affect your life. You may not hear that from a two-year-old, but you might hear that from a 15-year-old. Really, Mom, Dad, you want me to follow that? You don't. Yikes. That, that's, that's like cold water in your face. But we gotta, we got to remember that the word of God that we're saying ought to affect them is the very word of God that ought to be affecting us. So we have to avoid those kinds of words. Notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 through the end of the chapter. says, be angry and do not sin. So he's not saying don't be angry. You can be angry, but not in a sinful way. That means the only rightful anger is righteous anger. And I don't know about you, I don't know if I've ever had righteous anger. And even if I was righteously angry, I don't know that I could discern if I was righteously angry because I get irritated about things that I shouldn't get irritated about. Right? So when he says, be angry and do not sin, sometimes we look at that and go, see, I can be angry. No, you can't sin in your anger. So you better really be evaluating your anger if you are angry at all. And then don't let the sun go down in your anger. You better take care of that. If you are angry in a sinful way, you better deal with it because to not deal with it gives the devil an opportunity, not only in the situation at large, but also in your own soul, in your own heart. You're willing to compromise there. You're willing to compromise at other places. Verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only as such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. So your words, not only to your spouse, your words to your one child needs to be filled with grace because you've got other ears that are listening. Those in proximity... To not do so grieves the Holy Spirit. So that's the principle, that's the overarching principle that deals with this. Obviously, sinful anger can lead to physical abuse in homes, and discipline with selfish motives will do that. So we are not to discipline out of anger. So overt anger is obviously one area that we have to look at, but also subtle anger. Subtle anger. What would be examples of subtle anger? I know, I know none of us have ever done this, but just, we're just playing a game here. Being too subtle. Sarcasm might be. Okay. I'm not sure what I even know what that means. Passive aggressive. I know I've heard the term. Huh? That's my life lived out. Passive aggressive. So a silent anger, a a a kind of uh, uh, internal boiling. Okay. So sometimes our words might seem like we're we're. We're, we're trying to disguise what there's an anger on the inside. Pete? <laughs> so she knows the definition clearly. I will learn that what I said hurt. Yeah. Yeah. How about grouchiness? That's subtle anger. 
just grouchy. How about irritability? Irritability, grouchiness, right? You're nice to those people who aren't part of your family, your coworkers, the people at work. You're, you're, you're polite to them, even people in the grocery store who you accidentally cut off in the line or something. Oh, I'm sorry, no problem. But you get home and all of it comes out on your family. You're different with them. Dr. Hughes said one time, only the Lord knows how many children have lost heart because their fathers had a hard day. It's true, isn't it? It's true. And there's a cartoon several years ago that kind of illustrated that this way, right? The boss gets grouchy at work, so he's grouchy to his employee. So the employee comes home and is irritable with the kids. One of the kids, because of that, is irritable and kicks the dog. And the dog goes outside, runs down the street, and bites the first person he sees. Fortunately, it was the boss. <laughs> right? That's what happens. It all trickles down. We create this atmosphere, right? And so we're, we're, we need to be conscious of the pressures of life not allowing us to be driven into this kind of unhappy cycle that takes place. Where my irritabilities now, I haven't handled them rightly before the Lord, and so I'm just irritable. I'm subtly angry. I was sharing with the guys the other day, the other night on Monday night, that I woke up one day this last week, and I don't know what it was. I just, I just felt irritable. I just felt like punching something, you know. And it and it comes out in in subtle ways. You know, short, sharp words, uh, little things here and there, not doing things with the way you should, you know, whatever it is. And so every little thing just irritates you. You know, I was putting up something for my wife in, in one of the rooms, and I was irritated how the screw wasn't going in the wall. Are you kidding me? An inanimate screw is going to drive me to do that? That's what happens. That's what happens. And so we, we have to be careful of that subtle anger. Some of you have said, uh, spoken, you didn't use these words, but I think you're talking about a critical spirit, right? Pete, you were, you were mentioning that, you know, your wife said that was passive aggressive. It sounded like you're describing a critical spirit, right? Just critical for being critical, right? A constant drip of this. Can somebody tell me what's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. Joe. A thermostat would regulate the temperature and a thermometer would tell you what it is. Yeah, right? A thermometer just identifies the temperature. A thermostat controls the temperature. Well, we want to be thermostats, right? We don't want to be thermometers. We don't want to react to the moment. We want to kind of control the moment by responding rightly to what the Lord has brought about in our life. We have to remember that. Every situation, every moment, every detail, everything that is orchestrated in life has been orchestrated by God's providential care for us. So when your child isn't doing what you said for the thousandth time, God is using that in your life to shape you, to mold you, mold your own character into Christ-likeness. And to help them see their need for a Savior. All of those things God is using. So we have to, we have to take that and not, and not be sinful in it. So one of the overt ways is obviously by anger. Another way is this. And I think we're all guilty of this. Exaggerating exaggerating. Oh, come on, pastor. I never do that. Well, you just did. You say that. All right. Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12, verse 22. Good verse for us. Lying lips 
are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are His delight. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Ephesians 4.29, right? Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. That includes lying and and exaggerating is just that. It is a form of lying. The form of lying. Especially, and it it becomes an exasperating reality or an anger-driving reality in our kids when we do it about them. Especially if you have multiple in the home, right? We speak to one and we say, you're never like your siblings. Or why can't you do it? Or I've told you to do that a million times. We all do that, don't we? It's just exaggeration. It's, it's, it's lying. And we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful with that. Because it can bring about exasperation in their lives. Another way is living, we see this all the time in sports, living vicariously through them. Living vicariously through them. James 3.16 says you're motivated by selfish ambition, right? That's why you speak the way you do. Don't, Don't allow yourself to be motivated by that, by selfish ambition. Pete said it earlier, consider others more important to yourself, Philippians 2. Well, both of those can be a challenge for us as parents because we want our kids to succeed. We want them to, we have this picture in our mind of what that might look like. Oftentimes that's not even a biblical thing. And so we exasperate them sometimes by trying to live vicariously through them. Maybe as we went through school, our grades weren't all that good, so we want to force them. you got to get straight A's. If you don't get straight A's, you're going to be an absolute failure in life. Or, you know, whatever sports team they're on, they, we've, we've all seen it, the parent who drives their child to be the most perfection because they, they think they, they wanted to be the, you know, the star quarterback in the NFL, and so they're trying to drive their kid in that direction. We don't want to do any of that. It's all performance-based love is what it is. And it's based upon your own self-interest. So it's just selfishness again. Kevin? And it seems, too, that you can pit them against each other, too, by saying, why can't you be more like Johnny over here who's got great age and nothing uh, against or who doesn't lie like that? You can pit your kids against each other. Fortunately, that's kind of happened in my family where uh, my brother has trouble seeing me as the, as the golden boy to the parents, right? So uh, he's kind of always had a chip on their shoulder a little bit. Yeah. That can kind of carry us over. Yeah. Whether it's pagan home or Christian home, I think it's, in, you know, it's, it, it happens in both. And in a Christian home, the parent is shocked when an older child says, yeah, why don't I be more like them? Why don't you be more like Christ? And then they turn around and leave, walk out. And what do you do? Well, they're too big for you to handle anymore. Can't pick them up. And now you got disaster on your hands. I'm not saying what they say is right in saying that, but, but in one sense, there's a truth to it, isn't it? We need to be like Christ. They're, they're just expressing the hypocrisy that takes place. And that hypocrisy is exhibited through this desire to, to live vicariously through them and be want them to be something that I wished I could have ever been because I have an idol in my own heart about it. We don't want to do that. We don't want to humiliate them. That's the next one. We don't want to humiliate them, right? Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. Don't say things that might be sinful and put them down sinfully. Because it's never, I shouldn't say that word, but it's seldom edifying to do that. I would say when you're putting them down, it's never edifying to put them down in front of other people. Never. Never. 
So Ephesians 4.29, expressed again in your own life, is going to help encourage them. And then, of course, we've been talking about it all along, living hypocritically. I don't think we have to go too much into that. We all know that living hypocritically is, is not being who you really say you are. Matthew 23.3, if you say it, then do it, right? Let your yes be yes, your no be no. We're not, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about dealing with life according to the Word of God and letting the Word of God bear its weight on our life and be honest about that. So God will help us if we do that. And then, of course, the last or the last two, well, I don't know. Let's see how many we got. H. Okay, we'll give these quickly. Changing the rules obviously will exasperate. We, we talked about that with the whole example of COVID. When we change the rules constantly, it's going to exasperate people. You're going to exasperate them. They need to be, have something dependable, something solid, something, a fence they know. They know where the fence is. They know where the line is. When you don't know where the line is, you get discouraged. You get you you wonder, and then you, you know you cross an area, and it's it's discipline one day, but not discipline the next day. That's all exasperating. We don't want to be unjust. Proverbs eleven says that God hates injustice. He hates it. Doesn't matter what kind it is. He hates it. So we don't want to be unjust and. And yet we need to avoid favoritism. So make sure that you're fair, biblically fair. And then last, <clears throat> sometimes we expect perfection in our kids. First Thessalonians 5.14 says we're to be patient with all men. We're to be patient with all men. That doesn't mean you don't preach the standard. You don't strive to live by the standard. You don't hold the standard and accountability to the standard, whatever those things are according to the Word of God. That's, that's not perfectionism. That's just pursuing excellence. That's pursuing excellence, doing what is right for the right reasons. <clears throat> and so our, those under our care should be expected to, to, to grow in their diligence in doing that and striving for that. And it opens the door for them to fail so that we can point them to Christ and we can show them their need for Christ and all those kinds of things. But we're not to be perfectionists. So we need to let them fail. And the home is the place where failure happens in a safe place. It's a safe place to fail in the home because now you can be trained by it. You fail outside, the world just kicks you aside and moves on. Fail in the home, you're, you can be trained with that and through that. Whatever we're doing, we're either building up or we're tearing down. And that relationship is going to last a lifetime, Lord willing. It'll last a lifetime. And so we want to be an encouragement to them. We want to be an encouragement to them in every way. Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Well, we've seen what foolishness is. So above everything else, we have to fear God. And when we fear God, He blesses us. It may not look like what our mind's eye has for that blessing, but He does bless he does bless. Everything that He brings is a blessing to us, either for our correction, which is good, so that we might praise Him more, which is good, so that our children would come to see Christ, which is obviously ultimately good. So that was quick. That was, you know, we went through that pretty quickly, but I think you guys can, you know, gather the gist of what it is saying there and how to operate in your homes to, uh, to encourage those under your care. You're going to fail at it, I know, 
We all do, but God is gracious. Just because you failed doesn't mean you ruined your family. Uh, continue to humble yourself before God. Chris. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, Chris. That I I uh, I think if there was one thing we did as Christian parents, Christians in general, and that is just to to be openly transparent in our spiritual lives, that the Word of God bears weight upon me would have a a massive effect on those around us. Word of God actually has weight upon me. Rather than just being a book that I read and I stick on the shelf and yeah, we go to church and yeah, it's, yeah we, we claim to know God, we claim to believe in Jesus, all these other kind of things. No, it actually affects us. Actually affects us. We did that. Be huge. Huge. Because kids wouldn't be able to rightfully claim what oftentimes they do about their parents and other people. You're just hypocrites. They make those accusations, but is it a rightful claim? Maybe to an extent, because we all are sinfully hypocritical. But if we're allowing the Word of God to have its effect upon us, like you're talking about, transparent, where we admit our sinfulness and go to the Lord before it, and they see that, they may be able to say you're a hypocrite, but they can't live on that. We can't live on that. That's a good point. Thanks for the reminder.